as it is written in the law of, Mo- of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there is a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. And for a sign that is opposed, and a sore will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Caroline. What we've been doing for this season of Advent is we have been looking at these different songs that are sung in the opening chapter of the Gospel of Luke, the opening chapters of the Gospel of Luke. And if you're um, interested in some kind of nerdy info, those songs in the Latin are the Magnificat, which we looked at earlier, and then the Benedictus. Last week, Ben uh, showed us the Gloria, which is what the angels sing. And then this morning, we're going to look at what is called the Nunc Dimittis. Read like that one. Um, um, But, um, you know, I've been, so I've kind of been swimming in kind of Christmas songs for the past few weeks. And I've been thinking about all the different kind of Christmas songs that we sing just at this time of year. And for as many fun, nostalgic, sentimental songs as there are that we sing and listen to, there's also a few bad ones. There's a few bad apples out there, a few cringy, uncomfortable Christmas songs, and I wanted to just share with you what I thought are my most cringiest Christmas songs that we sing. Uh, The first is, I Saw Mommy Kissing Santa Claus, which sounds like kind of like a fun concept, but here's some of the lyrics. She didn't see me creep down the stairs to have a peep. She thought I was tucked up in my bedroom fast asleep. Oh, what a laugh it would have been if daddy had only seen mommy kissing Santa Claus. What a laugh. This is a case of um, deep denial and suppressing of emotions because there's multiple trauma happening on, on lots of different levels with this, with this song. Um, here's the second one. Uh, Baby, it's cold outside, which is too inappropriate to even, I can't even read you the lyrics of the song. Here's a song about a man who is hitting on a woman and not taking no for an answer, which is always wrong, and yet in our current kind of cultural moment, it just feels particularly icky, and so that song's canceled. Um, so, Maybe the most uncomfortable or cringiest Christmas song, in my opinion, is Santa Baby. This is a song where a woman 
is trying to seduce Santa into giving her extravagant gifts like yachts and convertibles and, and jewelry. And you hear the song, and you're like, why are we sexualizing Christmas, people? It kind of reminds me of um, when Fergie sang the national anthem at that NBA game. You remember this? So she's singing the song, and it's like she's singing it seductively, and you're like, why are we sexualizing the national anthem, Fergie? And I kind of want to say, why are we sexualizing Santa and Christmas? Cringy. Anyway, the reason I bring all this up is because the song that um, was just read, on the surface at least, might be the cringiest of all of the Christmas songs sung in the opening chapters of Luke. And here's why. Here's the story. At this point in the story, Jesus has been born. He's 40 days old, so you know he's a month and a half or so. And his parents would have brought him to the temple in Jerusalem for purification, to offer a sacrifice. And while they're in the middle of doing that, in the temple, there's this man, old man, that they don't know, that walks up to them, takes the child, takes their child out of their arms, and he starts singing a song to Jesus. I mean, can you imagine what that would be like if you're here bringing your son, as it were, forward for baptism, and we're right here, and we're baptizing the baby, and some rando old man that you don't know comes out of the crowd, takes your child from you, and starts singing a song to it. I mean, you would be freaking out. We would be calling security. This is, this is not a good moment. And yet, this is not how Mary and Joseph respond. It says in verse uh, 33 that after, the, after he sings this song, they marveled. They marveled. Which this is why I said oh, it's only cringy on the surface because when you, when you look at it from our vantage point, it just kind of seems weird. But maybe there was something culturally why this was normal for them, why they weren't freaking out or calling security. I don't know. But what is, what is interesting about this song, maybe one of the reasons why they marvel at this song is because even though Mary and Joseph have heard all of this information and songs from Zechariah and angels and wise men and shepherds, there's all this data that has come in about who this child is that they've just given birth to. This song uniquely fills in some gaps and sheds some light that none of the other songs have before this. And what, these, what this song does, I want to show you, it really shows us three things about what we can understand about Jesus that he's radically inclusive, he's radically divisive, and he's radically subversive. So those are the three big ideas I want to look at with you this morning. That, that this song, this whole story sheds some light. It shows you that Jesus is inclusive, divisive, and subversive. So let's look at the first one first. That seems to make the most sense. So what does it mean that Jesus is inclusive? Well, here's the story. Look at verse 26. It says that it had been revealed to Simeon. This is the name of the old guy that nobody knows. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. So the, the Lord by his spirit has somehow communicated to Simeon, okay, you're going to see the Christ in your lifetime. So day after day, he goes to the temple looking, watching, waiting. Where, where is the Christ? When's the Christ going to show up? And on this particular day, who knows how long he's been waiting. But on this particular day, the spirit nudges him somehow and says, hey, that, you see that poor young couple over there? 
They're holding that baby. That baby is the Lord's Christ. And so that's why he goes over to this couple, takes Jesus in his arms, and here's the song that he starts to sing, verse 29. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace, meaning I can die in peace now. Why? Verse 30. For my eyes have seen your salvation. Which I think that's so interesting. He's looking at Jesus. He's beholding Jesus, and he says, I am seeing salvation. Salvation is wrapped up and personified in this person. But who did this person come to save? Well, look at verse 31. Salvation has come that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. All peoples, light for Gentiles, glory for Israel. The way that the Jewish mind kind of divided up um, the world is to say there, there are us, there's Jews, and then there's everybody else, which is Gentiles. Just kind of no different from how Americans do it. We say, well, the whole world is divided between Americans and then everybody else. And this song is saying God's saving grace has come for all. Jew and Gentile, his, save, his salvation is being offered to everybody. There's, with, with, there's, there's no uh, distinction. It has no reference to your, to your tribe, your, your race, your nationality. Nothing about you is, is, is holding up this offer of salvation to you. In fact, you see this played out as this baby grows up. And as he lives his life, he is extending compassion and mercy to women and to men, to the rich and to the poor to racial insiders and racial outsiders, to people that are moral, uh, you know, up, morally upright and people that are moral failures, good citizens and criminals, um, addicts and those who are sober. His grace is extended to all. His salvation is offered to all. And now as modern progressive people, we hear that and we say, yeah, that feels good. It's available to everybody. Jesus is inclusive like that. But uh, think this out for a second. Because there is a jagged edge to this. Because this means that God's grace and his salvation has come also for the people that you don't like. The people that you despise. So if you happen to find yourself on the left of things politically, you have to hear this. His grace has come and is available for those who are on the right. And if you happen to find yourself on the right of things politically, guess what? His grace has also come for those who are on the left. If you think anti-vaxxers are crazy and irresponsible, his grace has come for them too. If you think getting a vaccination, wearing a mask is, is crazy and you're being mindless, his grace has come for them as well. Here's the point, is that... Jesus has not come just for the people in your tribe, in your camp, on your team. In fact, author Anne Lamott has this great quote where she says, you can safely assume you've created God in your own image when it turns out that God hates all the same people you do. You've created God in your own image when you think, yeah, God's on my team and he hates all the same people I hate. She's saying you can safely assume that's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible, what you see here, Jesus is radically inclusive. 
radically, painfully, uncomfortably inclusive. He offers his saving grace to all peoples. Now, there's a tension here because we also see that Jesus is divisive. He's inclusive, but he's also divisive. And you think, okay, how can that be? How can, he, how can he be both? Well, after he sings this song, after Simeon sings this song to Jesus, as it were, to the Lord, um, he turns to Mary and he offers her this really ominous message. Look at what he says in verse 34. He says, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. He's saying, Mary, this is no ordinary child. Some people are going to rise up, and some people are going to fall down on account of this child. Some people are going to worship him, and some people are going to hate him and oppose him. In fact, that's what he says at the end of that verse, at the end of verse 34. Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. He's going to be opposed. I mean, can you imagine hearing that as a parent? Somebody comes up and is like, oh, your baby is so sweet, so cute. But when this child grows up, there's going to be a lot of people that hate him. He is going to experience opposition and conflict. Here's the point. Jesus is going to divide the world. He's divisive. And you hear that and you think, I don't, I don't like that. I thought Jesus was supposed to like unite us all, like peace on earth and goodwill toward all men. What is this divisive business? Well, think about this with me for a second. Think of, think of the things that Jesus said when he grew up, the kinds of over-the-top claims that he made about himself. They're so... They're so audacious that it, 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 by necessity, divides the world. Think about this. A um, couple examples. In Matthew 28, Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority. That means he is in charge of the, of the nation of Israel. He oversees the Roman Empire. He's in charge of the United States. He controls death and every birth that's ever happened. He controls galaxies and the moon and weather patterns. There is not a rogue molecule that he's not in charge of. That's what, he's, that's what he means when he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. There's another place um, where he says, before Abraham was born, Abraham was, you know, lived a thousand or so years before Jesus. Before Abraham was born, he says, I am, meaning I've always existed. Before Abraham was born, I was. There's never been a time where I just haven't been. I am. Now, these claims are so staggering. They're so over the top. Put this into perspective. We live in a current cultural moment that says all religions are essentially valid. Um, you know, who are you to say what is right or wrong or better or worse from you know, somebody else's perspective of the universe? Truth is whatever is true for you. And all religions are basically the same. They're all kind of saying the same thing. They're all in the kind of same playing field. But think this out. Let's imagine one Sunday morning like this. Here we are at Redeemer, and I stand up and I say, hey, welcome to Redeemer. What is Redeemer? Well, Redeemer's a church, and what that means is we're a community of people who are trying to learn how to love God, and we're trying to learn how to love our neighbor. By the way, I'm the God that we're here to worship. And I created you, and I created your family, and I've created every human being on the planet. 
And every millisecond and molecule I am in charge of. And there has never been a time where I haven't existed. I am eternal, I am God in the flesh, and you owe me your absolute allegiance. We're so glad that you're here. Help yourself to some coffee and donuts in the back. Now, if I said that, there are only two rational responses. There's only two responses that actually make sense. One response is to say, I believe him. I think he's telling the truth. I want to bow down and, and worship him with the totality of my existence. Or option two, you would say, I think that guy is crazy. And I think we need to alert the authorities that there's this weird, attractive man um, leading this dangerous cult in the middle of the city. Those are your only two rational responses. Here's, what, here's a response that doesn't make sense. Nobody would say, eh, I think I like it. I like Redeemer. It's cool. I took some good notes, got some good inspiration from the guy's talk. That response doesn't make sense. In the same way, Jesus, Jesus doesn't give you that option. He's forcing you to extremes where the only rational response is to crown him as the king of the universe and to say, I believe what he said. And if that is true, that means that that overrides and is supreme over and against every other truth claim that's out there. Christianity can't be on par with every other religion. It's, it's, it is the truth over and against all other truth claims. You either crown him or your only other option is to crucify him. To say, okay, I think Jesus is, was delusional at best or a dangerous liar at worst. And either way, Christianity has to be way worse than all the other religions. It's, 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 a, it's dangerous. It's, it's riddled with, with this crazy false claims. You see how Jesus is dividing the world. He's forcing you to the extremes, either crucify him or crown him. You have no, there's no space in the middle. There are so many people that want to live in the middle, where we want to give Jesus a little lip service every now and then. We want him to be kind of a little decoration to our lives. Maybe we'll name drop him in our Instagram bio, or we'll, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll come to church every now and again. But if, if you're trying to live in this middle space, you haven't really done the math. You haven't really thought out what are his, what are his claims. He doesn't let you just hang out in the middle. If you're, if you're saying, I like Jesus, but it, I don't really think that he should have any say over my money, my time, my sexuality, how I spend my life, how I think about my neighbors, then you haven't really done the math. He forces you to one of these two extremes. In fact, if you read through the Bible, you read through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, nobody just likes Jesus. Nobody comes up to Jesus and pats him on the back and says, good sermon, they either want to murder him or they want to worship him. People come up and they bow down and they call him Lord or they get together with their friends and think, we, we have to figure out how to kill this guy. There's no middle space. Crown him or crucify him. You see how divisive he is. Inclusive, divisive. Here's the last idea. We also see here that Jesus is subversive. After... Simeon sings this song and gives this ominous message to Mary about Jesus, that here's this child that everybody's singing about. He's so significant, but he's going to experience conflict and opposition. Simeon 
also gives this ominous message to Mary about her. I mean, did you notice that? Look what he says in verse 5. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also. I mean, that's an intense thing, that's an intense thing to say. In fact, the, the Greek word for sword there um, means like large blade. He's not talking about a dagger. He's talking about this large blade. This is, this is what he's basically saying. Mary, something so awful is going to happen where it is going to feel like you are being stabbed in the core of your being. Something so horrendous is going to happen that, that your heart is going to get shattered over this child. Now, I think about what did Mary do with that information? Did she kind of write this off as bizarro of like, Simeon, I enjoyed the song, but now I need you to hand me my baby back because this is getting really creepy. Um, or I don't know, maybe she, maybe she believed it and it kind of got lodged in her mind and created a lot of anxiety for her where every day she's waking up and thinking, is today the day this horrible, tragic, awful thing is going to happen? Is today, is, what's going to happen to my child? Well, of course, these words find their fulfillment when Jesus is older and he experiences the cross. Here is this child that everybody's singing about. Everybody has put their hopes and dreams on him. This is the one who has come to rescue us and redeem us and reconcile us to God and to each other. And one day the authorities, they arrest him and they beat him and torture him publicly and they spit in his face and they laugh at him and they mock him and then they hang him up on a cross, which was the most cruel and inhumane and barbaric way for someone to die. And you think as Mary is watching this horror show playing out in front of her, that is the moment where the, the blade pierces her own soul for multiple reasons. Because you think for her, her personal faith was wrapped up in this person as well. So her hopes and dreams are crashing and burning before her eyes as she sees Jesus dying on the cross. She believed this story, that this is the one to come and to save us, and, and, it's, and it was all a lie. Her whole worldview has to be completely flipped upside down. But this is also a mother looking at your child, and you think anytime your, your own children are in pain, it just it pains you, and she is watching the most horrific, barbaric thing happen to her son, and just her insides just have to be just getting obliterated, the sword piercing her soul. And you think, good grief, why? Why is this the way this story had to go? Why is this what Simeon prophesied, what God had ordained for this child to grow up only to be just massacred? Here's why. If you go back all the way to the beginning, in Genesis chapter 3, humanity rebels against God. And as a result, God exiles them from his presence. And if you remember that story, if you're familiar with that story, it says that a flaming sword was put in place to prevent humanity from accessing eternal life in their fallen, rebellious state. In other words, because of the presence of sin in the world now, you cannot access God unless you experience a sword. This is why in the Old Testament, when the people of Israel wanted to worship God, what they would do is they would bring an animal and a sword would fall on the animal. It would, it, would, the, the, it would go under the knife, as it were. It would get sacrificed. The sword would fall on it so that 
the person who's worshiping God can reconnect with God, be reconciled to God. So what is happening on the cross? The ultimate sword is falling down on Jesus. He is getting sacrificed. He's the animal. He's the substitute. This is what Isaiah says. It says, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And with his wounds, we are healed. Three days later, he bursts out of the grave with a resurrected body. And you have to think, what was that like for Mary? Who in that moment, three days prior, where her soul is pierced and thinks it was all a lie, it was all fake. Three days later, he comes out of the grave and new life is breathed into her hopes and dreams. She begins to realize, oh my word, the story was true. He was the one. He is the one to come and to rescue us and to redeem us and to reconcile us to God and to each other. Here's what I want you to see, how subversive Jesus is and how subversive his ways are. There is healing, but it only comes through wounds. There is life that he gives, but it only comes through death. There is flourishing that he offers the world, but it only comes through suffering. So he gives away his life so that us, and with, with our wounds that we carry, we might be healed. We might experience life only because of his death. You see how upside down, backwards, and subversive this whole thing is? Here's how I want to end. Final thought. I love the image of Simeon holding Jesus. He's in possession of Jesus. He's looking at Jesus and he says, this, this is the consolation of Israel that I've been waiting for. I've been longing, waiting, aching for this one my entire life. And now that I have him, I can, I can depart in peace. My whole life makes sense now in light of this child. Everything that I've ever hoped and dreamed is wrapped up right here, and I'm in possession of it. Here's the question for you. Are you in possession of Jesus? Do you have him? Faith in the Bible is not coming to God and offering him something so that you can get something in return. It's not coming to God and say, well, I'll trade you my report card. I'll offer up my, all these spiritual points that I've racked up with my good behavior with the hopes that maybe you'll answer my prayers now, maybe you'll take me to heaven, maybe you'll do whatever. Faith in the Bible is just simply taking Jesus. It's just, it's just taking him in with, with your heart, as it were. I know that might sound strange, but it's looking to Jesus and saying, okay, I don't, I don't even know how all this makes sense. I don't have all the answers to my questions, but I know that when I look at you, I know I can depart in peace. I know that my life makes sense only because it's wrapped up in you. I know that everything that I've ever hoped and longed for and ached for in this life is somehow wrapped up in you, even though I can't connect all the dots. That's what faith is. That's what it means to crown him, to look to Jesus and say, you're kind of all I got. You're everything. You're it. And I don't even have all the answers, but I got you. Either crown Jesus or crucify Jesus. I want to invite you to crown him. Consider that invitation this morning. Let me pray. Father, I pray that you would um, help us to do business with your son, help us to do business with this story, knowing that 
his claims and the claims of this, of this account, they're, they're too over the top. They're too big. They're too earth-shattering to just click like on it and then to keep scrolling, keep going about our life as, this, as if this is just a nice little holiday distraction. I pray, Father, that you would give us eyes to see Jesus, the consolation of our hearts, the one that we are hoping for, waiting for, longing for, and help us to do the math of what that means. Help us to either trust him or to reject him completely, but free us up from trying to just like you and hang out in the middle. Give us the grace to crown your son, King of Kings. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.